Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society, and we bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they're going to show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We just want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that, even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So, we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. This week, we're finally getting to the crux of the conversation, the tolerance paradox. We wanted to jump right into it last week, but we realized that we had some foundation work to do on the concept of tolerance itself. So we spent some time defining what we mean when we talk about tolerance and why, as a collective and especially as Americans, why do we even value it? This included some pretty... (sighs) wonky philosophy about the nature of human discourse and and what drives it. You may recall the phrases uh, classical and fortress being mentioned a bit. (laughs) And then, because so much of our context around tolerance comes down to what people say, and because of the perception that the Constitution gives us the right to say whatever we want to, we also spent some time breaking down what counts as speech under the Constitution as defined by the First Amendment and SCOTUS, noting what kinds of speech and expression are and aren't actually protected under federal law. Now we've given you all the background we think is necessary, and we're ready to solve this thing. Yeah? Yeah. No. No. Yeah, the answer is no. Uh, But we are definitely ready to have at least an intelligent conversation about these ideas and hopefully help us all come together Uh, to a place of of greater understanding, because that is always the goal of these episodes. So as we go through this, remember those concepts that we talked about. Remember what is not protected speech in our society. Things that we have already sort of agreed we don't tolerate legally. You know, remember that. Remember what we talked about with regards to how communication works, because all of that informs so much of the rest of this of this discussion yeah and don't forget that by tolerance we mean acknowledging that that there are ideas and behaviors and beliefs that you don't approve of but not actually seeking to change them or eliminate them like that's crucial that definition is crucial to everything that we're getting ready to talk about and i think the most critical thing to remember is that tolerance and intolerance are not on equal footing when it comes to how they impact society. You can tolerate something that you don't agree with and allow it to exist in your presence. 
when you are intolerant of something, you are by, by the definition of intolerant, not going to allow it to continue. All right. So they're, they're not exactly opposite. An intolerant ideology will always seek to snuff out something that they don't agree with. Yeah, that's it's not like we talked about last week. It's not acceptance versus not acceptance. Um, it's not approval versus disapproval. It's not even agreement versus disagreement. It's allowing something to continue existing versus seeking to cease its existence. It's at this point that we need to start talking about the paradox of tolerance. And here we enter the maze of philosophy, carrying with us the tangled nature of a paradox, leading to us undoubtedly getting lost as all get out. Yeah. So this section is going to include a lot of opining, a lot of feeling, and a lot of the phrase, I, I just don't know. And there's just so much to unpack here. <laughs> it's very, very touchy feeling. Yeah. We're going to bounce back and forth from research to the opinions of philosophers to our own opinions. And we're going to do our best to tell you which is which. Um, but <laughs> as you are going to come <laughs> to understand... Oh boy, this is all very tangled up. Mm-hmm. So let's let's uh, let's begin by defining the paradox first, shall we? The paradox of tolerance was first noted by a political philosopher named Karl Popper during World War II. At that time, and let's be honest, for most of the time since, the Nazis were considered the epitome of intolerance. And like many around the world, Popper opposed their intolerance. But as he theorized tolerance, remember, that's coexisting with ideas that you don't approve of without seeking to change them as a rejection of intolerance. He surmised that complete tolerance, even of intolerant ideas and behaviors, would lead to the overwhelming of the tolerant by the intolerant. So if you allow them to coexist, complete tolerance with intolerance, the complete tolerance is going to be overwhelmed by the intolerant. They cannot coexist. So one of the most famous snippets of his theory reads, unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed, and tolerance with them. But then right after that, he says, In this formulation, I do not imply, for instance, that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies. As long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion, suppression would certainly be unwise. In other words, Popper is asserting that we should be tolerant of everything except intolerance, But we shouldn't seek to suppress intolerance as long as it can be kept under control by tolerant people. And you can clearly and easily see the sticky wicket that is this concept that we've decided to try to unpack for all of you. (sighs) Small interjection here, though. The next part of the conversation gets real deep. So before we get there, 
I think it's important to acknowledge that much of what we're going to talk about in this next section is predicated on the ideal of infinite tolerance. There's this presumption that a person's status as tolerant is only valid if they are tolerant of anything and everything that they disagree with. It's where those snarky comments about the tolerant left or Christians loving their neighbors comes from. But the reality of the matter is that none of us is truly tolerant of everything. Every individual or in-group has set limits for what is tolerable, what we should seek to gently change, and what must be actively opposed. And these ideas grow and they change over time and for a variety of reasons. And very often, they stand in contradiction to the limits of other in-groups. In one of the articles that we discussed last week, Barbara Passamonic talks about the popular perception that there's this moral tipping point, that we should be tolerant of everything until it shows the potential for violating liberal order or the common good. But in reality, even that's a moving target as what society comes to accept or reject changes. So as we talk about whether or not a tolerant society should tolerate intolerant views and behaviors, keep in mind that this is a paradox in truly philosophical terms. The idea of a tolerant society is, in practical terms, undefinable. Our collective tolerance is really just a loose coalition of in-groups with overlapping behaviors and views and whose opposing views we can tolerate until we can't. So when we talk about society as a whole, feel free to imagine what society means to you. That might be your family, your ethnic group, your neighborhood, your religious group, or any combination of the groups that you belong to. Okay, back to contemplating this paradox. I think it's very easy to illustrate this idea that in real life, uh, unlimited tolerance cannot exist. And therefore, the idea of the perfectly tolerant person is a, a straw man. It's completely unachievable to mm-hmm. begin with. Yeah. Because all you have to do is say, if you were a person with unlimited tolerance, you would therefore tolerate somebody who believed they had the right to kill everybody, to murder indiscriminately. Right. And I don't think there is any person on this planet who thinks that that is justifiable behavior who who would tolerate that who would allow it to continue to exist because by its very nature that would mean that you're going to end up murdered at some point (laughs) right because somebody's out there killing everybody but also like we all have a cultural understanding and agreement of the fact that murder is bad so that's probably the easiest part of the paradox to unravel. It's like, yeah, you just you don't even have to take that on faith from us. Perfect tolerance does not exist. It does not exist. And not I even- think that's one of the reasons that we had to limit this to to tolerant speech. Right. That's why we had to put it in the context of expressive conduct and speech in the United States under the First Amendment, because there is no scenario in which every person and or society would be tolerant of every behavior of every expression like it has to we had to put it in some sort of a context in order to make this a a relevant conversation yeah yeah guys not even jesus was perfectly tolerant he whipped some fools in the church so let's uh yeah i guess the temple let's be precise here right in the temple so uh yeah so we're living in 
very different times than Karl Popper uh, when he philosophized this issue. But at the same time, we're not living in conditions too dissimilar to his. In the run-up to World War II, intolerance had progressed from an undertone of ideas to political policy and was embodied in Germany for all the world to see as direct action against the Jews, against the Romani people, against the handicapped, and all who would tolerate those groups. The government itself was mandating this intolerance, so it was inherently pervasive. Talk about people and policies either happened in very public spaces or in the privacy of one's home. One could usually clearly see the degree to which his or her neighbor was complicit in the action. And there were known and active subversive groups and individuals working to counter oppression every day. But our current American government functions more closely to mandated tolerance than intolerance. And many of us, especially those who consider ourselves to be a part of the younger, more tolerant generations, barely even know our neighbors, let alone know where they stand on others' behaviors and ideas. And our perception of the pervasiveness of intolerant views or behaviors comes almost solely from the media that we consume. Television and internet news and social media and podcasts and on and on. Right. And another little side note here, that is why representation matters. Regular listeners will recall that we talked about this a couple months ago. One of the avenues of normalization for society is normalization through our entertainment. What we consume gets heaped onto the pile of quote-unquote normal in our brain, which is used to create the frame through which we view the world. Art reflects culture, which reflects the art. The whole relationship is symbiotic. They inform each other. Just wanted to plug that episode and also remind people about why we care about different (laughs) perspectives in art. Okay. Exactly. I mean, according to the Pew Research Center, half of Americans that they polled get at least some of their news, like what they consider to be news, from social media. And 36% of those people said that Facebook is a regular news source for them. Even though we know, we know, we know, we know that what we see on social media is heavily manipulated by complex algorithms designed to show us what they think we want to click on. And we know that the news that we see on these sites is often inaccurate. I mean, 59% of those people who use social media as a news source said that they know that it can be largely inaccurate. So we're steeped in the information that we choose to consume, but we're also able to remain largely separated from what we don't want to know. Today, we hear the rumblings of unrest and intolerance in similar tones, but they seem to come from many sides. Every in-group can name at least one out-group that they believe is intolerant of them or their beliefs. And sometimes intolerant speech even gains a really large platform. Hmm. Uh, What what could you possibly be referring to, Robin? I, you know, you know, I'm going to leave that open to interpretation because like we just said, every in-group can name at least one out-group. So depending on who you are, I could be talking about the immediate previous president or I could be talking about the current president and you would never know. That's not true. true. Everyone listening knows. (laughs) (laughs) But no, the point stands though, the point stands though that whereas we are very, we are very obviously referencing 
a certain former president. Right. Um, it would be it would be disingenuous and and wrong to say that the current president doesn't also have a level of intolerance for certain groups within American society. Yes. And I think as much as we would like that not to be the case, it's the nature of politics, I think. Right. And um, I don't want to give the impression that we here at Fireside Productions LLC not a real thing. That's not a real thing. Uh, not a real, not a real thing. That we believe that that Biden is by any means perfect or not right. also guilty of many wrongdoings. So, yeah, and that's, although that's we the joke, point. although we joke, yeah. The point is that depending on who you are and what group you identify with and what your closely held beliefs are, you're going to feel either tolerated or not tolerated by somebody who is in a different group, who has a different set of beliefs. And that's just kind of universal, especially in this current context of everyone's thoughts and opinions being expressed en masse in the internet. Unfiltered and raw. I mean, we can even, we can go all the way back to the origin of the conversation, right? This is the concept under which many anti-fascist groups operate. If those rumblings of intolerance that we feel like we hear from every side had been silenced in pre-war Germany, then the world could have avoided one of its greatest tragedies. That's that's one of their founding philosophies. Mm. If we can silence them now, is the idea, then we can avoid that same mistake. So the question that Popper's Paradox poses, <laughs> I love alliteration nice. so much, is actually very relevant to us. Should we, as a society, as Americans, tolerate intolerant speech? Well, the good news is that there are only three possible answers to that question. Yes, no, and the never sexy but usually the right answer sometimes. (laughs) So we're going to explore each one of those paths and we're going to see where they take us. Again, just another reminder that when we're talking about intolerance and speech, speech that is intolerant expresses the intent to overcome change or eliminate views, behaviors, and or even people that the speaker disapproves of. And in this context, we're considering expressive conduct, so behaviors that are related to expressing one's beliefs and ideas in a way that would otherwise be protected by law, by the First Amendment. So the first argument, yes, we should tolerate intolerant speech indefinitely. We should have unlimited tolerance. Those of you listening might be thinking, if especially if you've been listening since the beginning, that tolerating intolerant speech already seems inherently worthless, given <laughs> that we have we have presented the idea that unlimited tolerance of intolerance would eventually destroy tolerance. I think we've said that phrase or some permutation of it probably like twenty or thirty times. But there may be arguments to be made. And one of them goes back to the classical model of the reason for free speech that we discussed last week. Remember, that model stated that the primary driver or or goal of democracy was everyone in a given community participating in the decision-making process with equal respect both for the process and the society and then equal power 
in the process. Yeah. And if you believe that this is the ideal or what we should be aiming to achieve in society, then whether or not you believe intolerant or extremist speech should be tolerated comes down to what you think is the most important foundation of this model. Specifically, is the most important part of the classic model an adherence to democracy and democratic institutions? Or is it an adherence to the social contract? If you think that we should allow intolerant speech, then it's likely that you think that the social contract is the most important aspect. This is a whole can of worms, but we're going to hit it high level. Social contract theory covers a lot of ground. Um, But for our purposes, it means that the only just society is one where our fundamental political and societal institutions are a product of either a literal or hypothetical agreement among all members of society. Everybody must agree on the best way forward. Otherwise, the institutions holding the power over every citizen are unjust because they ignore the will of some. Knowing this, we know that intolerant speech must be allowed if social contract is our highest priority. It must be protected speech. If we're going to reach an agreement on the best way forward for all of us, then every idea on that way must be given its chance to be weighed. If those ideas are not allowed to be voiced, then a fully rational and considered agreement cannot be justly made by the participants. Um, Imagine if you were to be given the choice of vanilla or chocolate ice cream. You don't really like either one of them, but given that those are your only two options, you say, eh, fine, I guess I'll go with vanilla. But what you don't know is that the ice cream man had strawberry the whole time. He just isn't allowed to tell you about strawberry because a bunch of people decided that strawberry ice cream was gross and threatened to send him to jail if he sold it. You, the person who doesn't like vanilla or chocolate, but really digs strawberry, We're not allowed to make a just decision because the ice cream man was not allowed to present you with every option. The social contract theory argues that no decision can be made justly without knowing all of the options, and therefore intolerant speech must be protected. There's also a theory that we haven't really covered yet. It's called the self-restraint theory. And it was suggested in 1986 by then-professor and now president of Columbia University, Lee Bollinger, in his book, The Tolerant Society. Bollinger argues that extreme speech must be protected not because it is inherently valuable, but because it helps promote self-restraint. If I'm speaking frankly, I I think the self-restraint model is too detached from reality to stand on its own. However, for the purposes of this argument, I want to present why it argues for tolerating extreme speech because there is some merit to the argument. It doesn't stand alone, but it is a good supplemental thing to understand. So in this model, the importance of speech is actually subordinate to tolerance. Speech is less important than the idea, the concept, and the practice of tolerance. Instead, the principles of self-control, self-discipline, and self-restraint are the most important virtues in society. Intolerant speech, by its very nature, is likely to provoke an intolerant response. When someone is calling for the death of a group, you can expect members of that group to maybe be a little upset about that. 
Therefore, intolerant speech should not be protected for what it is, but rather for what it can do. It can further the pursuit of self-restraint. By exercising self-control in responding to extremist speech, one builds up the capacity for tolerance. And ultimately, society would, I, I suppose, reach a critical mass of tolerance, and intolerance would eventually fade away. Right? If everybody practiced this skill and developed it, and it were made important and something to be like, achieved by the individual, then eventually society would hopefully collectively work to attain that. Now, I'm not going to critique the theory on this podcast. Suffice it to say, this views intolerance as a way to better ourselves through training our self-control. This actually reminds me a lot of, uh, of an antidote my pastor told at church when I was growing up. It was kind of a joke. Um, we were talking about cultivating virtuous habits, and one of them was patience. And he was like, a lot of people say God doesn't answer prayers directly anymore. But how many of you have prayed for patience? Yeah, a lot of us. And we always kind of envision God just making us magically more patient. But that's not how God works. There were a lot of assumptions about how God works made in my <laughs> church. <laughs> I realized this looking back. It's pretty funny. But I heard that phrase a lot. That's not how God works. That's not how God works. No. You know how I know God answers prayers? Because I once prayed for patience. And for the next month, Every line I had to stand in made the DMV look fast. And that's how you learn patience. You <laughs> practice it. You pray to God for, pa for patience. Be prepared for lines. Oh. It, it must have been a good anecdote, I guess. But like, I mean, I never prayed to God for patience after that <laughs> because I hate lines. But I also remember, I also remember the anecdote. So it yeah. made some sort of impression. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, okay, but we wouldn't be presenting fairly this argument for um, unlimited tolerance if we, if we didn't take a look at what that might mean. So, if we're going for this unlimited tolerance of intolerant speech, allowing members of our society to express ideas that seek to dominate or eliminate others' beliefs or behaviors or even existence... What do we do then when those expressions cause direct harm to other people? So let's look at transgender and non-binary youth for a minute, shall we? Right? They're a part of a group that is often the target of intolerant speech. The human rights campaign reminds us that many of these young people experience family rejection and bullying and harassment. They feel unsafe for simply being who they are. And according to the Human Rights Campaign, more than half of transgender male teens who participated in their 2018 study reported attempting suicide in their lifetime. 29.9% of transgender female teens said that they attempted suicide. And among non-binary youth, 41.8% of respondents said that they had attempted suicide at some point in their lives. So there's an argument to be made here that intolerant speech caused direct or indirect harm to these young people. But then again, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Because as we've already pointed out several times, 
unlimited tolerance of intolerance could ultimately snowball into an intolerant society, which leads us directly into our second option. Which is no, we should never tolerate intolerant speech. We absolutely should not tolerate intolerance. It would lead to the destruction of society, so we must clearly not be tolerant of intolerance ever. This is the paradox answer. (laughs) One of the key arguments against tolerating intolerance comes from the fortress theory, or rather a critique of the fortress theory. You will remember that the fortress theory states that we cannot ever be sure that any of our ideas are right. We are inherently uncertain, and that uncertainty means that we must be tolerant, even if the ideas seem nonsensical or or dangerous. Because without absolute certainty, once we start censoring bad ideas, it is far too easy to begin censoring the good ideas along with it. So hang with me. I know we are arguing against tolerating intolerance right now. (laughs) Gotta set that groundwork, okay? So let's carry this idea to the logical conclusion. If we must allow all views to continue uncensored, then we must therefore allow the arguments of the intolerant person who wishes to censor almost all views, including the views of the people wishing to tolerate all views. So we have to allow the guy who doesn't want anybody to have a voice to have equal weight given to his opinion as the people who want every person to have a voice. Their ideas are considered philosophically both meritorious. (laughs) If all views are equal in their uncertainty, that is, if we cannot say that any one view has more merit or quote-unquote truthiness than another, then I have no way to say that using the powers of the state to defend a free marketplace of ideas is any better than using extreme censorship to ensure the stability of the state. There's no way to untangle freedom of speech from extreme censorship. There's no way to determine which one is better. So taking that a step further, if my political opponent were to gather more support for his equally viable option of extreme censorship, then application of those ideas would rob me of my power, thus simultaneously destroying the fortress theory and freedom of speech in one fell swoop. Essentially, the theory itself presupposes that we cannot have unlimited tolerance of intolerance or the theory collapses it's an underlying assumption that the theory fails to recognize in itself okay i feel like that may be a bit esoteric so let's take a look at a real world example of the dangers of allowing intolerance to flourish in american politics we actually have a ton of examples to choose from uh, but let's look at one that we haven't discussed much Senator McCarthy and the Red Scare. I have a soft spot for discussing communism, so I'm real excited about this. (laughs) The Red Scare was essentially a mass panic caused by the perceived threat posed by communists in the U.S. during the Cold War. 
This panic had numerous effects on American life. Federal employees were tested to see if they were sufficiently loyal to the U.S. government. Neighbors spied on each other and reported suspected secret communists to the authorities. And Senator Joseph McCarthy and the House Un-American Activities Committee. Every time I read H-U-A-C, I just want to go, Hook! Um, that's, that's the only joke I was trying to make. Okay, but that's really good. I think we, I think we should... Oh, I'll put it in. Okay. The investigations led by the HUAC were responsible for putting countless American citizens out of work. Even so much as being suspected of being a radical would land you on a blacklist, rendering you unhirable for fear of being a communist and bringing trouble down on the company. McCarthy used this opportunity to accumulate power for himself, becoming both powerful and feared. He would wield accusations of disloyalty and radical sympathies at anyone and everyone who disagreed with him, from celebrities to scientists to political opponents, destroying careers and reputations. McCarthy's claims grew increasingly wild, starting with claiming to have a list of 205 communists who had infiltrated the State Department. Note, he never produced this list, but he did name one Owen Lattimore as a quote-unquote, top Russian spy in America. Lattimore was an expert on Chinese culture and affairs who had advised the State Department. The magnitude of this revelation spurred an investigation, which found nothing to substantiate the claim, and rocketed McCarthy into prominence in the American public. He was appointed chairman of the Committee on Government Operations and its Subcommittee on Investigations, which would broadcast its questioning of suspected communists. McCarthy bullied defendants under cross-examination with unlawful and damaging accusations, destroying the reputations of hundreds of innocent officials and citizens. Thankfully, McCarthy overreached when he accused several U.S. Army officers of communist subversion, causing Eisenhower to push for an investigation of McCarthy's charges. The subsequent hearing exposed McCarthy for a fraud and a tyrant who never produced documentation for any of his claims. But McCarthy had left an impression on the American mentality at this time, coining the term McCarthyism and forever standing as a monument to abuse of power and intolerance in the American psyche. If you've never watched the McCarthy trial, it's actually very interesting. And it almost plays out like a, a Hollywood script. Because there's this amazing climactic moment where McCarthy, while on trial, accuses one of the legal aides to the prosecutor of, I, I can't remember if he accused him of being a, a communist, oh but God. basically slandered him while he was on the stand yeah. without any evidence. And it, it like it just broke the prosecutor. Yeah. Just, he was done. And it he he has like a three-line monologue right there i don't know how else to call it because it, it does it sounds like a script which actually spawned the term have you no decency in this like american cultural lexicon yeah. that's where that phrase that's it's a specific reference to that moment and it really is it's it's like a like all you have to do is put a score under it and you've got a, a few good men killer right there <laughs> it is it is it, well worth both watching it for historical purposes and also seeing how dramatic this stuff can be in real life. Yeah. 
Now, I think it's fair to admit or to to allow that McCarthy may have been driven more by a desire for power than actual intolerance for communists. But I also hardly think that dis- that that particular distinction matters at this point. The end effect was the same, uh, a mad witch hunt for anyone who dared hold ideas that were against what he, the intolerant, deemed were unacceptable. If that one doesn't do it for you, history is full of other examples, with, with Nazis being the obvious example, uh, but we could also look at the Chinese government's treatment of the Uyghurs over the course of the past several years. If you haven't heard, there's a... Uh, a more than credible case to be made that the Chinese are in the midst of a genocide of the Uyghur people. In fact, um, the Chinese government's actions in Xinjiang have violated every single act prohibited by the United Nations Genocide Convention, according to a new independent report drafted by dozens of experts in human rights, uh, international law, and genocide studies. So it is not my opinion yeah. professional or otherwise that they are committing genocide it is a all but established fact that what they are doing is considered genocide it honestly if i took out uyghur and put in and chinese and put in nazis and jews i could tell almost the exact same story rounding them up putting them in concentration camps doing horrible things to them killing them making sure they couldn't have children it's bad terrible. things. Just bad things. So there's another prime example of how intolerance within a society, but particularly within the government, uh, can lead to this horrible thing. Uh, we've made it pretty clear that, uh, or at least I think we have, that allowing intolerance to run unchecked is the opposite of good. But the assertion that we should never be tolerant of intolerant speech also poses some very tricky practical questions like how do we determine who gets to decide when speech crosses the line into intolerant? What exactly is that line anyway? And what is the consequence for intolerant speech? And then... We have to descend that slippery slope to the precipice where our militant pursuit of tolerance leads to complete intolerance of ideas that run counter to popular opinion or feeling, sentiment, <laughs> legislated definitions. These ideas, these cultural ideas of what tolerant looks like. And we find ourselves in a cycle of unchecked intolerance. And now we find ourselves in a situation not unlike the cup scene in The Princess Bride. We are Vizzini sitting at that small table with the man in black, trying to determine just which glass holds the Iucane powder. We can clearly not choose the wine in front of him, but we can just as clearly not choose the wine in front of us. But the reality is, both glasses are poisoned. Both lead to an end undesirable to a majority of people. And that leads us to what is generally the least exciting option on any table, compromise. Our tolerance of intolerance should be conditional. That is our third 
argument to consider. And this train of thought tracks really closely with the work of another political philosopher and actually contemporary of Karl Popper, who was named John Rawls. Rawls outlined, oh, and I should note that um, Rawls was American. He was from Boston. So his perspective on these kinds of political philosophies comes from a a distinctly American um, approach. But Rawls outlined what he called his theory of justice, which is comprised of two basic principles that he believes should guide decision making. But only one of them is actually relevant to this conversation. So that's the only one we're going to talk about. But if you'd like to look it up, it's called the Rawls theory of justice. So he asserted that each person should have access to the same permanent and fully adequate set of liberties. In his list of liberties, he included most of the liberties in the U.S. Bill of Rights, like the freedom of speech and due process of law, as well as some liberties from the broader areas of human rights, like freedom of travel. But he held that these rights could be limited for the sake of liberty, which would mean that the freedoms of intolerant individuals or groups, under Rawls's theory, could be limited if they infringed on the liberties of others. It's like that saying, your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. When allowance of intolerant speech poses a direct threat to someone else's rights or their well-being, whether that's through violence, discrimination, or, or even legislation, then a just society should intervene. And this is pretty much where we find ourselves legally right now in the United States. There are laws on the books, federally and in the states, that prevent harm to others based on many criteria that would fall under the umbrella of tolerance. Race, religion, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, etc. But what of the private spaces? Or the places where intolerance seems to be subconscious? One might argue that's where groups like the Baldies or Rose City Antifa or even Black Lives Matter come in. They were and are active in the non-regulated gaps, pointing out and fighting against a kind of intolerance they believe threatens the liberties of others. But that brings us back to what I think is one of the sticking points with this paradox. And it's one that we covered earlier in the episode. And it's the idea of anything like a cohesive, tolerant, or even just society. I don't know that we'll ever come to a place where we'll agree on who is and isn't tolerant and what words or actions are threatening enough to another's liberty to warrant intervention. We will likely never agree on how to determine whether or not we agree. And that means that we can never collectively tolerate or not tolerate anything. Remember the Hitler question that we posed way back in our first episode on Antifa? There is no one right answer to that question because it's not objective and neither is tolerance. What we can do, though, is determine what we are and are not willing to tolerate as individuals or in the smaller groups that we belong to. And we can decide to what lengths we're willing to go to fight against intolerance. And we must take responsibility for our individual choice on that front. Only we can decide what we can and will do to prevent harm to others caused by intolerance. I like the timing of this episode because we're seeing yet another outrage about 
quote unquote cancel culture right right now um which i don't know if i've coined the term outrage culture but i haven't seen anybody else use it yet but it always seems like a certain part of society needs to be mad about something yeah they must it's twitter outraged twitter's always mad about something (laughs) it's this that part of society is twitter um but it kind of illustrates this point that we're never going to agree on what is what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, the example that's coming to my mind right now is the Dr. Seuss books. Oh, yeah, that's a if, good one. Yeah. Now, something that I think needs to be said very plainly is that nobody canceled Dr. Seuss. Yeah, that's um, that's a really that's a it's, really big one. No, nobody canceled Dr. Seuss. The the Seuss. What is it, the Seuss Foundation? A state. The, yeah, they, the they decided. The people who are responsible for managing his stuff. They were like, some of these books are not us. But like nobody nobody was like banging their fist on their keyboard saying, cancel Dr. Seuss. At least not in the last couple of years. There have been times in my lifetime when people were really upset about Dr. Seuss stuff. But I think that that's kind of what originated this whole conversation inside the estate. Yeah. Well, and if you are mad about these early books of his being canceled, first of all, you clearly haven't seen the books um, <laughs> because there's some pretty overtly racist yeah. stuff in them. And secondly, you don't know much about Dr. Seuss because the man was racist, guys. Yeah. Like, he used to make money drawing racist caricatures and putting them on things like stamps. That is that is fact. That is what he used to do. Right. And, uh, you know... <sighs> I don't want to give the impression that I think that Dr. Seuss is a bad person. He is a product of his time. Right. It goes back to exactly what we we have been talking about. What happens when popular opinion suddenly says this thing that we tolerated before we no longer tolerate. Exactly. And there's always going to be a, a shifting culture. We talked about that. How what we agree on to be acceptable culturally is always shifting but there's never going to be a collective because we're never a, we're, we're not a hive mind species yeah thankfully we don't all feel the same way we don't all think the same way we don't all process things the same way and none of us have ever had the same experience as anybody else on this planet and that can be one of the things that makes us strong makes us strong as a society makes us strong as a as a country and makes us strong as a as a as a species but we have to acknowledge that there is strength in diversity for that to happen and we have to therefore practice tolerance we have to be capable of seeing something that we don't necessarily agree with that might even make us uncomfortable but if we can't identify something about that that actively endangers somebody else we need to just be okay with letting it be. Yeah. I mean, we you need can... to let people have things, enjoy things that right? we don't necessarily agree with. It's okay to say you disagree, but like, it's not okay to, to squash it. I actually had you this can't... whole rant about cancel culture in one of the first drafts of this episode and I took it out because it will basically just turn into a rant. Me having a lot of feelings, but. Can you give me the high notes? Um cancel culture is is entirely based on this 
this unachievable ideal of a collective level of tolerance or justness or an objective goodness versus badness, right? We agree that these mm. things are good and we agree that these things are bad. Um, it is all predicated on that echo chamber that is our social media. Every every different in-group has their own version of cancel culture. They're all mad about different things. And it's because in that echo chamber, they all get themselves all worked up about something. And then mm-hmm. they decide inside that group that this is a thing that we can no longer tolerate and we're going right. to fight against it. Um, but if once you right. go outside of that, that echo chamber, once you go outside of that in-group, a lot of times it seems very inconsequential. And it, it just... Right. So much of it is a reflection of the changing perception of society. Like I think about how it got started and especially within the beauty community and how it was basically people digging up nine and 10 year old tweets, right? These tweets from these people who were probably only barely old enough to be using Twitter at all. Yeah. When pervasive humor on the internet was overwhelmingly derogatory and we still used gay as a negative descriptor. Like that's yeah. where we were as a society when these people made these tweets. But then suddenly 10 years down the line, people are digging them up and saying, you're a racist, you're a homophobe, you're all these different things. And we have this this idea that now we can hold who we were before to the standards of who we are now. Yeah. Um, like people are I just, I'm not here for it. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. But we have yeah. to be mad about something. Yeah. Twitter always well, has um, to be mad about something. You got to be, you got to be not mad Twitter to about something. If people aren't mad about things. Yeah. Um, uh, something you said sparked something in my head and I cannot remember what it was right now. Oh, every group has their own cancel culture. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. Which is something that has irritated me about this most recent wave of mm-hmm. cancel culture outrage <laughs> yeah. is the people perpetuating it are the same people who tried to cancel Harry Potter. Right. Have we moved on to Mr. Made- Potato Head? Because that's my <laughs> favorite controversy right now. Right. Who, um, who, who did successfully cancel Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. Who um, are constantly calling for the boycott of products that they don't agree with. I re- I remember when Yeti coolers were getting run over and Nike was being burned because oh, yeah. they supported some social justice thing. I don't I can't even remember what it was because it happened more than two minutes ago. Uh, there um, was half a decade when several evangelical denominations would not go to Disney World or buy Disney movies or watch Disney movies oh, yeah. or sing princess songs yeah. because they had a day when they let gay people have a parade. Oh, my gosh. Gay people. Um, but uh, gay people at large have been canceled <laughs> like <laughs> right. by that particular group, right? Like I don't know of any more ultimate canceling than telling an entire group of people you're going to hell for existing. Right. Well, like, yes. It. Okay. Okay. But like that's that's next level cancellation. That is in well, oh, no, that's intolerance is what that is. Yeah. Like that we've gone that beyond that that protected expression of speech that protected expression of what we do and don't disagree with into straight intolerance yeah no and actually i think that is a great uh example to highlight the difference between holding somebody accountable for something that they did and have responsibility over like dr seuss and his estate right versus 
condemning somebody because of something that either doesn't represent them anymore or they have no control over to begin with. Right. Cancel culture is maybe condemning somebody over something that doesn't reflect who they are as a person anymore. I can see that being a legitimate, quote unquote, cancellation that is not good because people grow and change. But it is intolerance, period, point blank, to say gay people are inherently sinful and going to hell and there's nothing you can do about it. We don't think you deserve rights either, by the way. Um, A, I am by sending you to hell, you know, absolutely disregarding your right to exist. And plus also, no, you don't get to have rights and I delegitimize everything that you are. Like that's that's just definitionally intolerant, like you said. Right. And I I think something that is playing out right now is that same intolerance has shifted because it has become less culturally popular even in the church to hold this mentality about gay people at large Mm, mm -hmm. so now the same tactics that have been applied or that were historically applied to gay people are now being focused on a subset of queer folk right i don't know if that's the the politically correct way to say this so somebody slap me if i'm wrong yeah um of of trans of the trans population and it's it's almost point for point the same playbook that was pulled against the the gay population um, like a decade ago. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it's just been recycled. Um, and all you got to do is swap out the the descriptor. The problem that I'm worried about right now is that the trans community is actually particularly vulnerable. Because they get ostracized by the straight community, yeah. but they also get ostracized by the gay community a lot. And it's a, it's a problem from both sides. Yeah. So and they then, are... Yeah. And then there's all the different intersectional places where they're also ostracized. Uh, we know that yeah. black transgender people, especially black trans- transgendered women, are especially ostracized and exposed to violence Mm. yeah i think they have the i think they're the population with the highest suicide rate by let me look that up i i um yeah yeah one in three black trans youth attempt suicide yeah it's huge and and that that includes obviously the entire binary or the entire spectrum not binary the entire spectrum of gender identities right but i mean i don't i i don't think there's any population group that's higher than 33 percent yeah and it i mean it just goes back to that like the idea the idea that we have to we have to take responsibility individually for what we will and won't tolerate and then we like we have to decide where that line is for ourselves and There may be times when, like the resistance groups in Germany, when resisting intolerance runs counter to the pervasive and even legal swell of the culture. But the only solution to this problem is, I think, individual responsibility. Yeah. And taking every everything on a case by case basis, I think. Somebody might hear you say that sometimes what you have to do isn't necessarily what is legally permissible and might think that you are saying 
something you're not. Right. So I want to clarify, nobody here is saying go out and break the law. No. Just breaking the law. No, but not what by any is stretch right, of the imagination. What is right and what is good and what is moral is not always what is legal. Correct. And if, if you don't believe that, then I want you to think about Nazi Germany again. Right. And remember that it was illegal to hide the Jews from the Nazis. Yeah. And you tell me what was the right thing to do in that situation. And if you can look me straight in the face and say, I would have turned them over to the authorities, I will either call you a horrible person or a liar because we both know the truth. Right. Um, I mean, if we, if we want just a straight American example, Miss Rosa Parks refusing to get up from her seat on the bus was illegal. She mm-hmm. chose not to tolerate it anymore. And that meant breaking the law. And that meant facing the consequences, which she did willingly. Mm-hmm. You can't just go out there. I guess the, the point that I'm making is you can't just go out there and like do whatever you think is right in the sake of fighting intolerance, but then not be willing to deal with the consequences. Right. Like right, she right. knowingly and willingly dealt with the consequences because what she believed was right was so important to her. The people who hid the Jews knowingly and willingly did so, knowing that they were putting their own lives on the line for what they believed was right, not thinking that they would be able to make some grandiose claim of the moral high ground. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah. I mean, we started this whole conversation talking about Antifa, and that's, that is what a lot of these anti-fascist groups have been doing for a hundred years they're stepping into the places where there are those gaps where maybe maybe it is completely legal to be intolerant to the point of infringing on someone else's right to exist. Or maybe it's more subversive. Maybe it's more subconscious and, and deeply embedded in the culture. But that's what these groups have been doing all along is taking responsibility and being willing to face the consequences. Exactly. I think... Um one of the one of the best people that you can think of to model how you should approach this would be John Lewis. Yeah. And remember that sometimes you got to get in good trouble. But make sure it's good trouble. Good trouble. I think uh, that'll wrap it up. And uh, let's hit the good news. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got oh, to plug. plug. I got to shamelessly people, plug. My bad. I need to tell you guys how to yell at us for saying that sometimes it's okay not to do the legal thing. Yeah. Wow. So if that really struck a nerve, if you really got to light us up about that, you can reach us in a variety of ways. On the social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Fireside Breakdowns. We will pop up. Uh, If you would like to send us an email, it's firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. Most importantly... The feedback that we want from you guys more than anything in the world is to leave us a review. We cannot stress how important it is to leave us a review. If your platform allows it, do it. If you don't know how to do it, we have a link on our Facebook page. You click on it. It's a link tree. It pops up whatever platform you listen on and guides you through how to leave a review on that platform. If your platform does not allow leaving a review, Leave one on our Facebook page. I promise I'll give you a high five if we ever meet, if you leave us a review. I'll give you a crisp high five. Ooh. Yeah. 
That's a promise. I'll break out the reserves. The reserves. So yeah, believe that is the short and concise way <laughs> to plug us. <laughs> Hey. What's the good news? All right. Our good news for today comes from the Women's History Museum. They've recently launched a really cool project called the Women Writing History Project, which invites women, girls, and gender non-binary people to journal their daily thoughts and experiences during the COVID pandemic and then share them for inclusion in like a, a mega anthology. The idea behind this project is that women bear a disproportionate amount of the burden from this pandemic, from carrying the burden for childcare and home education to job loss because they're more likely to be working in industries that were greatly affected by closures during the pandemic to filling roles that were previously held by men who are statistically more susceptible to severe COVID. And the Women's History Museum didn't want the stories of these experiences to just be lost. So they have invited people to contribute their, their daily journals and their routine experiences. Um, if you'd like to learn more about that project, I would highly suggest heading over to womenshistory.org to learn all about it. Very cool. Yes. Very cool museum, by the way. It was one of the locations T and I were looking at getting married at. Oh, very cool. So, very, very cool museum. So that'll do it for us this week. We will be back in one week with the next steaming hot episode of whatever. We don't even know what it's going to be Maybe something yet. a little lighter. Probably something a little lighter. Until that point, uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening and take care of each other.